Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much to those of you that already signed up for Libro.fm, this very cool audiobook company that I partnered with. Offer code here we are. This is the most exciting partnership that I've ever had on the show. I have been wanting to partner with an audiobook company for some time because. Well, many of the guests on this show have audiobooks of their own. I listen to audiobooks all of the time. I talk about audiobooks on this show all the time. There is really no better product for me to be partnered with and associated with. I'm so excited. I got into audiobooks like eight years ago or something like that. I moved to LA. I already had horrible road rage issues before moving there. Some of you, my album, My Big Break, which is available for free on Spotify. I'm not sponsored by Spotify. I'm just giving you a heads up. Uh, there's There's a track called Gulp on there. You can hear about some of my road rage issues. (laughs) Um, But uh, anyway, I moved to LA and it was, uh, I I reached a breaking point. I could no longer, you know, the traffic jams are everything that you hear about on TV. I could no longer handle it mentally. And so I, it was at the same time that I really started getting more and more into caring and learning about everything we talk about on this show. And I, I just got into audiobooks and it just changed my life rather than me uh, fretting about the time and trying to like maneuver around a car for no reason that wasn't saving me any time anyway and and honking and going crazy instead I would just get some dense audiobook and listen to it and I would I would have so much of my concentration put on the audiobook that I was just kind of paying attention to when I needed to turn and not hitting the car in front of me, and I let everything else just slide. I, I didn't get worked up over all the other stuff. It was life-changing, and I'd get to sit and I'd listen to, say, a book like Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by my hero Robert Sapolsky, who I talk about all the time, and I'd hear about how uh, sitting in a traffic jam unnecessarily put puts this huge task on your body because of the way the stress response system is maladapted in many ways for our modern world. And I got to learn all this stuff. Many people are like surprised I don't have a college education. They're like, how do you know all these things that you know about on this podcast? Especially considering I spent 15 years of my life blackout drunk and I never paid any attention in any school at all growing up. And a lot of it is just from listening to audiobooks while driving. That's where I've gotten most of my information. So I really couldn't be happier. Besides Libro.fm, there are grassroots which I'm all for grassroots stuff. I'm a, I'm a small independent business myself. They're, they're a, a real grassroots business and they are the only audiobook company that, uh, that you can support your local bookstore through. So you go through, you sign up, offer code here we are, and then you go through and you pick the bookstore, uh, the local bookstore that they partnered with, which is, they have hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of um of local independent bookstores that they've partnered with maybe it's one in your city maybe it's one from your hometown and the audiobooks that you get are from them so they they're they're splitting the the profits with your local indie bookstore 
And then in the email and everything like that that you get is from your local indie bookstore. Uh, Libro also has like these these great recommendations and playlists, like a Here We Are playlist. When you go on there, you'll see that. So you get three with the offer code Here We Are. You get three months for the price of one, which is fourteen ninety nine. By the way, if you just like went in and uh, went online or went into a bookstore or whatever and tried to get an audiobook, it would be well over thirty dollars usually. But for fourteen ninety nine, you get a credit each month for an audiobook, and so you get three of those for the price of one through the Here We Are um, promotional code, and that goes right to me. I get that. They're they're hoping that you're going to stay around past the three months because you're going to be so happy with Libro.fm. And so it helps out everybody. It helps out me. It helps out your local indie bookstore. Um, and it helps out you by educating you and entertaining you and just being uh, a part of something really cool and learning at the same time so i hope you're enjoying libro.fm if you haven't checked it out you can always go to the here we are podcast.com website and i have it under each episode description now going forward and you can check it out from there i hope you enjoy today's show are we yes where are we here why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm in Washington, D.C., talking with postdoctoral fellow studying evolutionary biology at the University of Maryland. Kristen Hook is joining me today. Hello. Hey, Pleasure to Kristen. meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Well, we already know each other now. We're becoming <laughs> fast friends. You That's were right. on Stand Up Science. I was. As terrific. And then we were like, when are we going to do this podcast? And you're like, well, I have yoga in the morning. I'm like, I want to go to yoga too. And then we went to yoga together. This <laughs> much, I've never done yoga with a guest before. Oh, so this I'm... is is very exciting. Now we're we're stretched out. We're loose. We're feeling. Well, we are we'll ready have to, to podcast. See. If if this podcast is is a lot better than typical podcasts, then I'm going to have to ex- insist on future guests doing going yoga with you. <laughs> yoga beforehand. I highly, um, highly uh, recommend doing I that. I do feel a lot better. I've been in such a funk because I hate winter. I mm-hmm. just, I just do not like it at all. I'm from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I never liked winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and same for me as a South Texan. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah. see, you, you would think that I would have been used to it, but no, I, I never cared for it at all. Um, I, I lived in Austin, Texas. We both, your cats are now scurrying around. Um, that's <laughs> lots of fun. Um, I can put them out. No, 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 they're fine. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, so going, yoga is a wonderful way to beat the winter blues for sure. It um, really is. It's terrific. And you were on a, a special Valentine's Day mm-hmm. edition of Stand Up Science, mm-hmm. which was so much fun. People got to hear so much about sperm <laughs> for Valentine's Day. Because when fitting. I first contacted you, I was like, I don't know if you remember the conversation because, it, mm-hmm. you know, we were talking about how you're into sperm competition stuff and that's love it that's mm-hmm. uh, sperm competition is my topic. jam and 
um, no pun intended. Eh? And, <laughs> and then uh, you were like, should we book like, you know, a social scientist or someone that studies like human relationships or something? We thought about that for a little while, but then we were like, no, let's double down. <laughs> let's double down on sperm. You and know, so it's, when a, you study sperm, you know a lot of other sperm people. And yeah, so yeah. it was a good... We had two sperm people on, mm-hmm. on the same show. It was so terrific. And people were fascinated by it. Sometimes uh, when, you, when you get things under the microscope, th- people start losing interest a little bit. Once you get down to that level, mm-hmm. it becomes a little less accessible for people. And people were just hanging on every <laughs> second of it. It's it's just such a fascinating, interesting subject. So sure I have a lot of people. We it, It's been some time since we've talked about sperm competition on the show. Okay. Might have even been might have even been a few years now. Oh, okay. Uh, which she was a long in the sperm world since then. <laughs> sure. A there's, yeah. there's a lot of research. Yeah. As of always... last year, we can make uh, sperm cells from skin cells. Um, there was a what? paper that came out. So, yeah, with technology. What are you continue. talking about? How do you uh, do that? I personally do not do that. Well, how and does I don't know a how do person? You don't know how. To... I don't. I And to be. Frank, I, I have not read the paper fully. So. Well, I don't even get it. Why are they? Why? What's the point of doing that? Just to see if you can. Well, just to, can we turn everything into sperm? <laughs> like, I think. Well, I think the cool, the coolest thing that I took away from that paper or that idea was that you can basically start with a stem cell, right? Which is like a a pre cell before it's um before it's going to become what it will and you mm. can basically switch around the the instructions. St- switch around the instruction manual and then produce a gamete a gametic cell and Neato. i mean that could potentially be useful for same-sex couples to be able to reproduce oh even yeah they're, yeah um you know usually you have to have a donor but you wouldn't need a donor in this in, in this situation so it can be applied to a lot of in a lot of interesting ways and again of course like this is where my my knowledge stops because i know there are a lot of um uh, there's a lot of hesitation in uh, society to progress in in some ways in science to do things just because we can do things doesn't mean we should. So I feel like this oh, is, you know, it's a should. new, I think we should do, I think it's cool, but <laughs> they have to do some testing and sure and things first, but it's no, still a it's cool so idea. It's so exciting. I, I like that. Uh, here's what I'm excited about. I saw some story, I guess they took some, Oh, what is it? I'm I'm not going to. You know what? I'm not even going to try to do the terms because I don't quite remember. <laughs> yeah. But but they took a they they were able to take the DNA from two different eggs of two different females and combine them mm. in some way. So so it was like uh, the DNA was split between these two females hmm. or something like that going on I, and I've i I, I used to i used to know what this was um <laughs> and now i'm having trouble articulating and remembering exactly how they did it but uh there, there was it was like one of the females had had some um uh, genetic defect sort of okay, thing that they okay. were so they were using the other uh females egg to cancel out uh, to combine hmm. that to cancel out the potential harm and and so there was going to be oh. uh, like she she would have had a high chance of infant mortality or something like that hmm. had she. so that's interesting yeah, yeah i'm not familiar with that but that sounds but this is what's exciting to me if you can combine now you can have like 
two ladies, Sharon and Egg, but mm-hmm. but you can combine it. I I I want this is my it's more of like a TV show pitch, but <laughs> I I think that two eventually two couples, you know, our modern world is getting more expensive. People mm-hmm. are having less children and kids are seemingly costing more. I don't know how that's, but my grandparents had like eight children. I <laughs> yeah, don't my my dad it. is one of six. Yeah, and uh, but I I want the I because I don't want kids myself. But if I could, like I have some good friends, my I'd be like I I give you twenty percent, twenty five percent of my my DNA. I'd spl- <laughs> I'd split. I'd be a fourth of a parent. I'd oh, be one of four parents. And that's I wonder if that's what the future will be if people will be able Co-parenting, to combine. Multi multi parenting. Yeah, multi parenting. Well, well that, I mean that would be an interesting that would lead to some interesting social experiments in evolutionary biology then because there's this big theory that um you know, Ken selection that like we tend to favor people that we're more related to and right. or, or i mean the same is true in animals as well right like if you share genes you're going to be more predisposition to to treat those individuals differently and um that'd be an interesting scenario to alter the relatedness your relatedness to other individuals and see if you start behaving differently toward them rather than like your friends kids. yeah or maybe <laughs> they would maybe your your kid would be not as or uh, who knows? Maybe you wouldn't care about your kid as much. Maybe they wouldn't know. care about you as much. I mean, there's also a lot of like social. Uh, there's a lot of environmental cues that are built into just the the people that you're spending a lot of time around in in the, in the very early stages of life. There's some mechanism that's just going like you're probably related to this person, even mm-hmm. if you aren't. You mm-hmm. know, so there's a lot more factors. So I'm sure. not sure just switching around the genes is going to necessarily change that but it'd be interesting it's an exciting new world it is and uh and that's what i yeah so i want that's why i've decided i i want a fourth of a child (laughs) Uh, (laughs) all right (laughs) um so all right sperm competition let's get into it let's do it because like i said it's been a few years i'm sure i have Mm -hmm. a bunch of new listeners that haven't heard every single episode of the here we are podcast let's give them a refresher sperm competition some people have been sitting here for 10 minutes now going what the heck is sperm competition (laughs) so break it down for people all right so um this is one of my favorite party topics it's always fun when somebody i've never met is like so what do you do it's like the big question of the day in dc and most people expect to hear oh i'm in politics or i'm a lawyer but no i'm i'm a sperm biologist it must Um, be such a relief (laughs) it is they must be so excited to talk oh, yeah. to you i oh, usually end goodness. up with a circle of people around me and it's an awesome opportunity yeah, for a city communicating full science. of lawyers it's like uh, yeah no you, you always need everyone needs some fun sperm stories in their life yeah. so so basically the gist is um you know most animals are not monogamous uh most animals are indeed promiscuous meaning mm-hmm. males mate with multiple females females mate with multiple males and when you get females mating with more than one male you get um the evolution of traits in males that allow them to outcompete one another and simultaneous to that you get the evolution of traits in females that allow them to uh have a choice in who who they choose uh who they would choose to mate with or um kind of you can think of this in terms of 
processes that happen before mating, and you can think of them in terms of processes that happen after mating. So Charles Darwin is mostly known for his theory of natural selection, survival of the fittest, but one of his lesser known theories that's kind of a subset of natural selection is called sexual selection. Ooh, let me reword that, <laughs> sexual selection. And what that is is basically the idea that you have one sex, typically males, competing for access to the other sex, typically females. And the males are trying to convince the females that they are the sexiest to mate with. And females have a choice in who they who they want to mate with. And whoever she chooses is going to have very high reproductive success. He's going to be the one that mates. He's going to be the one that has offspring. And that's beneficial uh, for him. But all the other males who don't get chosen are going to have very low reproductive success and maybe not pass on their genes to the next generation. So Darwin saw these two processes, male-male competition and female choice, as being kind of the drivers of this variation in reproductive success among individuals. But he didn't realize that these processes actually continue after mating as well. So instead of the parallel to male-male competition that happens after mating is sperm competition, where you have competition between the sperm of two or more males for access to the female egg. Um, And then simultaneously, you also have female processes uh, at the level of the egg that are selecting for certain sperm, or it's the the potential for females to preferentially bias sperm use in favor of certain males. And that's called cryptic female choice. And it's cryptic because the the male that she's mated with has no idea that these processes are happening. But um, both of these are really fascinating processes that, um, as you can imagine, may may not always... uh, be harmonious. So the traits that evolve in males that allow them to outcompete each other may not be in the best interest of females. And then the traits that evolve in females that allow them to control who fertilizes their eggs may not be in the best interest of males. And so that generates what's called sexual conflict, which is a a non-overlapping interest between the sexes as they both are attempting to optimize their fitness. And it's those three processes of sperm competition and cryptic female choice and sexual conflict that is thought to be the major a major driver of reproductive diversity of reproductive traits observed in nature, not only in terms of reproductive behavior, but also in terms of reproductive, um, you know, genitalia and anything that's involved, any trait that's involved in reproduction. So it can be morphological or it can be behavioral as well. Yeah. Does sperm vary a, a lot more? Is is there just a lot more variation within the? I guess I kind of always think of. Um, sperm or the male side of things in evolution as as kind of the the variety of the spaghetti getting thrown against the wall and females <laughs> being like, okay, that one's stuck. Well, it's not so much a, a process that females are thinking about consciously, right? right? It's evolution is favoring certain traits in females that then are the selective environment for those other traits in males. There's very much an interplay between the sexes happening here. It's not like one thing's evolving the other's um, you know, there's always a, a response. There's a, there's a, something evolves and then something responds and evolves in response to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, sperm are incredibly variable. They are the most, they're one of the most diverse cell types in existence. They are just so bizarre. If you look across animals, uh, across different species, they just look so different. Um, I study rodents and, um, I'm working in a group of mice in the genus Paramiscus that include the deer mice, deer mouse, um, and rodents are rodent sperm is very unlike typical eutherian mammalian sperm. So human sperm is pretty boring in comparison. Human sperm. Sorry, fellas. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Human sperm is basically just round, has a round head shape, and um, 
it doesn't really do anything super interesting, but the, the mice that I study, um, and rodents generally, they have really weird head, head shapes, very complex head shapes that have an apical hook. They have a little hook feature and we don't understand what that hook feature is for. They're also paddle shaped. And, and in the group that I study, these sperm actually form groups that swim together that are modal. And so they look kind of like little jellyfish. Um, when you put them, when you, when you first release male sperm, you will see them swimming individually. And then very quickly, they'll start to form these temporary and loose aggregates that swim together. And at some point, they're definitely dissociating when they're in the female because multiple sperm in rodents don't fertilize an egg. But we don't really understand the processes that are happening up to that point. So it's pretty, pretty cool to be able to be on the forefront of discovering these things. So you guys have no idea what the hook head is doing? No. I bet it's hooking on to something. Did I just well, solve the mystery? <laughs> that's actually been that's actually not a bad idea. Um, and a good pun. No, they're they are there's a hypothesis that they're basically kind of like hooking I mean, through the female be egg onto something. Yeah, well, so it, it penetrates the egg and then it's hooking in. Is that what the, that's, that's a the hypothesis? hypothesis. Okay. There, there is some evidence to show that it might be useful for the for the sperm to actually kind of hook into the female tract as it's swimming up, up the up to the site of fertilization. So it kind of gives them a, a lever to like hook in and stay there. If you think about what's happening in the female, there's a lot of movement going on in the female. And there's actually a cool study that came out a few years ago showing that there's kind of like a swimming action that sperm have to take, a surfing action, because there are these kind of peristaltic movements of the fluid within females. And so so it's not a it's not just like a, a totally un you know perturbed swimming pool of water or something, right? Like we're talking about um really complicated uh you know, tubing and tissues that females have. And the, the idea, especially in promiscuous species, is that the more promiscuous a species is, the more yeah. the more complex the female structures in, internally um, are going to be. So it's kind of like having a, a crazy racetrack that sperm have to swim through in order for them to be the winners to fertilize her egg. So, um, yeah, it's so the hook might be useful for them to kind of latch on at some yeah for the obstacle point. course when yes. when when the the hose comes out to blow all the guys out of there <laughs> whatever whatever is going on in there i imagine there's a hose of some <laughs> some kind yeah, so you you've, you've, <laughs> you've swam up you've made some progress you gotta take a breather for a second so you just hook into the <laughs> the female yeah uh, <laughs> actually that's not a bad hypothesis i mean what you're suggesting is that it, it's energetically it provides them with respite, energetic respite, which we know energetics is really important in sperm motility, right? They have to have they have to have enough power to make it all the way up to the site of fertilization. Um, if I just so. cracked the code, I'm going to be very disappointed in science <laughs> that, I was, that my hey, silly joke science, that I was making you, just. <laughs> hey, ideas are one thing. Following through and designing the experiment and absolute, testing it sure, is a whole other sure, thing. So absolutely. be my guest yeah. to to do that. Okay. Yeah. Um. So. What's going on with the egg? Oh, I know my sperm is so boring, but <laughs> you you get a bunch of these troops blasted in there, and you look at them under my, and there's just all these all these fellas trying to get into this one egg. On the uh, what's that? Is there like a selection process happening in there? Is the egg itself able to? Is there some sort of chemical exchange happening where it's letting the the one sperm in well when there's like i don't know a thousand i, I have no yeah. idea how many sperm are, are i mean 
And yeah, absolutely. I think that there are some really complex biochemical things that are happening. That's not my level of expertise, but I am aware there's a chemical gradient, sperm are attracted to it, and they move toward it. Um, my understanding, though, is obviously sperm or ejaculates um, contain a lot of sperm. I think I read like last week that the average human ejaculate contains 200,000 sperm. And there's a lot of range there, but um, around that number, but you can think of that as the, as a good average number. And that's a lot of sperm. But if you imagine how many actually make it to the site of fertilization are probably pretty minimal. Um, I'm not sure I can't give you a number for that, but And then you kind of got to hang out there and wait for a while in a lot of cases too, right? Before the egg kind of drops, depending on on the timing. timing. It totally depends on timing. Yeah. Um, So... And this is, again, where I i mean, I don't study human sperm. I yeah. don't study human reproduction. But um, so my understanding of this is very limited. Well, that's but, OK. We'll just keep yeah. talking about it. Um. <laughs> Find the areas around which I'm the least comfortable. Perfect. <laughs> um, so there's not a there's not a process like that going on in. Uh, in the in the mice that you're studying where where the the sperm are arriving early it, when is the egg being be, becoming released. fertile and, and being released and and During, yeah. when does that uh, occur in relation to um, the females being receptive right so I mean that that is the receptivity stage right is when she's she is releasing an egg um, and in mice obviously that's a much more frequent cycle than in humans um, so I think it's I think it's around a four day estrocycle. cycle. Mm. I would not include this because I really this is not my area of expertise. Um, four four days is what I have in my head okay, as well. So so I think it's past. a four day, and I should know this because there's a grad student in my lab studying this. But it's I think it's a four day estrocycle. cycle. All of this is linked hormonally, um, and in mice it's a four day estrocycle. cycle, and obviously there's some variation around that. And then in humans, a 28 day, right? So we, we're doing things a little differently. Um, but yeah, and that just, I mean, females are going to be receptive at different time points, but um, I guess they, and obviously the longevity of sperm will matter as well, like depending on when she mates and then when she releases that egg and how long the sperm have to live within the female. These are all factors that are very, that are variable depending on the species you're talking about. Um, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but. Oh, no. It's... I wanted to go back, though, to this idea that you had yeah. about, like, whether or not eggs are selecting sperm, because um, there is some really cool evidence that they can and they do. So one paper that came out uh, a while back was in tenophores, right, like um, jellyfish, basically, like a, a, a species of jellyfish and or a comb jelly. I can't remember at the moment, but. They because they're translucent, they were able to observe what the what the egg was doing, and they basically observed that this egg was kind of selectively moving around and almost like testing the different sperm out before it allowed a sperm to um, fertilize it. And so that was really cool to demonstrate mm. that maybe eggs do have some some choice in the matter. Obviously, there are also um, you know, surface proteins that are present on the egg that are also, um, there are some, also some proteins present on the sperm head and maybe it takes like the right lock and key for that fertilization event to happen. And even though there are a number of sperm surrounding that egg, it's really going to take this one specific, um, sperm cell to, to do it. Um, there was also, I mean, we, so we have some evidence, obviously traits, traits are evolving in, um, males in terms of the kinds of things that their sperm will do to 
outcompete each other so that they can fertilize eggs. But there's some really cool evidence that of this happening on the female side as well. As I mentioned, cryptic female choice earlier, mm-hmm. there was a study that came out a few years back where they were looking at Australian house mice and they looked at populations that were monogamous where you wouldn't, oh, oh excuse me, all, all house mice are promiscuous, but they collected populations of house mice that varied in their level of promiscuity. So there was one population that had not so very mixed litters of of pups, right? And then there was another population that had pretty high levels of sperm competition because they had very highly mixed paternity litters. And so um, what they found when they they basically altered the social cues of these two populations to, to make them either think there was low or high levels of sperm competition present. And when they did that, they found that the uh, the, the eggs of the females in the high sperm competition populations became much harder to fertilize, indicating that there's this kind of what we call plasticity, mm. where the, there's ability to change even very rapidly uh, in response to some kind of um, selective pressure that's going on. And that was really cool because I've never seen a paper that did something like that that's basically showing that even female traits in the face of sperm competition can change to make it harder for them to become fertilized. So those sperm have to do more in order to achieve fertilization, basically. Wow. So it just mm-hmm. it just puts out like the black belt egg out there. <laughs> it does. Huh. And and why but why not just do that all of the time then? That's that's so strange. Well, because why not? I mean I mean, oh okay, so I I get uh, y- Sperm competition as a whole makes all sorts of sense when you have like all uh, this uh, promiscuity, you have multiple males competing and females having this lovely obstacle course to, to <laughs> test the different variation. But even, even if there's no promiscuity, there's still, there's still some competition within. I got 200,000 guys in there, but only one of them's going to win the race. So usually zero of them, but, but, uh, <laughs> if, if one of them's going to, it's only going to be one. And there is some sort of variation in there. And if an egg, you would think an egg would still be selecting for some level of fitness, even at, even, even in a very monogamous. Oh, um, absolutely. I mean, well, two things. Um, as I mentioned earlier, only certain sperm are going to be the ones to make it to the very end, right? And those are the best sperm. Those are the ones that made it through the racetrack. They're swimming fastest or they're swimming. They have uh, more swimming longevity or they have more longevity in general. They're longer lived. They're the ones who make it. They're the ones who will be the ones to fertilize her eggs. You know, there's a lot of crappy abnormal sperm that gets produced in a regular ejaculate. So those will never make it. And they, and that's kind of, you can think of that as kind of the female egg selecting for the best sperm. But I wanted to also mention that um, eggs are, oof, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, I have two words for you in regards to your question of why not make it hard all the time. And those words are natural selection. So there's, as I mentioned earlier, natural selection is this idea of survival of the fittest. It's typically how people understand it. It's really just differential survival success. And um, in order, it's not only important that you survive, it's also important that you reproduce, which is sexual selection. So it's kind of a subset of natural selection. You don't want to have an egg that is so hard to fertilize that you never have a fertilized egg and therefore you never have offspring, right? Mm -hmm. So you need to lower that bar a little bit. You need to be 
able to be fertilized, but you don't want to be so easily fertilized that you run the risk of what's called polyspermy, where multiple sperm, if multiple sperm can penetrate an egg, that will result in an inviable zygote. So you will not actually have, um, have offspring. So that egg defensiveness, what's called ovodefensiveness, is likely being driven also by the will to survive, right? The, it's evolving a mechanism that prevents it from having multiple sperm enter it, which you could imagine will be the case in a more sperm competitive environment where there's multi- more sperm than normal, that you would pre- you would prevent all of those sperm from being able to fertilize you, therefore running the risk of having an inviable zygote. Mm. I mean, eggs are costly. Eggs are expensive to produce, you know, and females are born with the amount that they're going to make for or have for their entire life. So wasting even one is, you know, there's going to be a cost to that. So selection is not going to favor traits Hmm. that allow that to happen easily. It seems like there's a, it's almost like a supply and demand sort of thing. Mm. It seems like if everyone's trying to get into this nightclub that's very selective but the, and, 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 the, and you have the best bouncer at the door but then if it's just you know hardly anyone's wandering into this dive bar you're exactly. just like yeah whatever that guy's good enough exactly that's a huh. good analogy <laughs> <laughs> um so so what specifically are you working on Oh, that's a good question. So um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm working on this interesting group of mice that are not traditional lab mice, um, but they are closely related. And this group is really interesting because their sperm form groups that swim together. So that's only arisen a number of times, um, independently a number of times across animal taxa. And so it's a really unique phenomenon. And the question is, why are they doing it and how are they doing it? So for my postdoc project, I've been working on understanding those two questions. Um, and we had some in- inclination that, or we had um, seen anecdotally that there's variation across species and how likely they are to form these groups. Um, and we were able to verify that. Some of them form really large aggregates and they do so at high in high proportions, whereas some of them don't really form aggregates at all, or they're kind of crappy at doing it. And so that led us to ask, uh, to be able to ask, why are they doing it? And, um, and to ask how. So, um, the best way, if you're interested in understanding post-copulatory sexual selection, right, these processes of sperm competition or cryptic female choice and the sexual conflict that can result from those, then, the best way for you to study that is to study animal systems that have their either a populations or species that are very closely related, but that differ in their level of uh, their mating system, mm-hmm. right? Where some are monogamous. And so in those in those populations or species, you wouldn't expect to see any sexual conflict. You wouldn't you would expect very low levels of sperm competition risk, and you would expect very low levels of cryptic female choice occurring. Um, conversely, in a closely related species, if they're promiscuous, you would expect very high levels of sperm competition. You'd expect cryptic female choice to be going on and you'd expect um, sexual conflict to be pretty high. And so by basically by having a system that has these two different groups, you can easily compare the traits that are present within both of them and you can ask what's different. And what traits evolved in those promiscuous species that aren't present in the monogamous? And that'll give you an indication of what traits are important in allowing either males to outcompete each other or females to control paternity. And so this group of mice we're working on is ideal for that because they're a very closely related species that some are monogamous and some are promiscuous. 
And so um, basically we kind of started with assessing how much natural variation is there in this behavior and have uh, more recently started approaching it from a hypothetical perspective of understanding why they're doing it. And typically the explanation for why sperm would aggregate at all is that it's driven by male competition. If you think about it as, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there are rival male sperm present within the female tract. And if it's beneficial for some sperm to group up and they therefore might swim faster or uh, they might more easily navigate through the female tract if it's more, if it has a more viscous fluid and they can swim faster in that, that might be a benefit that those aggregates gained that allow them to outcompete rival males. So typically these behaviors, these really unique sperm behaviors are couched in terms of post-copulatory sexual selection. They're thought to be driven by male competition. And so I've been investigating whether or not that's true and looking at um, you know, whether aggregates are faster, if we're seeing aggregates in mostly promiscuous species or whether we see them in monogamous species as well, and whether or not they are capable of swimming faster when you increase the viscosity of the media they're swimming in. Hmm. So um, basically what we're finding is that it's complicated, <laughs> which is always the case in science, right? Um, you find one, you find one, you answer one question and then you have a million others. So we've kind of found um, some interesting results that are showing that there might be something to these aggregates being selected to be really refined in a promiscuous species, but they, in the monogamous species, even though there is one species of monogamous that is forming these aggregates, they're actually kind of doing a crappier job of it. Uh, and there's, they're not as fast in those species. So there is some indication that post-copulatory sexual selection is involved, but it doesn't seem to be the only thing that's driving these behaviors. So those are, that's kind of looking at the why would they form aggregates. But another part of my research is asking how they form them. And something that is hypothesized is that, as I mentioned earlier, rodent sperm are really uniquely shaped. They have this weird apical hook, they're paddle shaped, and it might be that there's something about their sperm head itself, the shape of their head that might be driving these aggregation behaviors. And so a large part of my research has been to use a scanning electron microscope and image, run image analyses of the sperm heads across these different species to look at if there's variation in sperm head shape and if that is correlated with or driven by the aggregation behaviors that we're observing. I mean, one of the nice things about finding these species that vary so much in whether they aggregate or not is that we can then directly compare within a single male, look at his sperm head shape and how his sperm behaved and whether they aggregated. So it's a really powerful tool that's allowed us to kind of get at the nitty gritty of these questions and really probe the predictions that we would expect to see if these hypotheses were supported. So, so far we are finding there is very natural variation in head shape in these, uh, across these species of mice. There does seem to be a correlation of, between head shape and their swimming performance, so how fast they are. And there is a pattern of, um, that we're finding that wider sperm cell heads actually are more likely to form aggregates. And uh, we think that it might not just be the shape of the head, but also what's present on the surface of the head as well that, that could be driving that. If there's some kind of like a sticky Velcro region that's found in the center of that cell, kind of around the equator of it, that might when you widen that cell, when evolution favors wider cells, that might then drive these behaviors to um, to start happening because they're more likely to stick to one another when they encounter one another. 
Hmm. So it's kind of an interplay of um, what I'm finding is it's an interplay of how fast cells are as well, because the more the faster cells are, the more likely they are to encounter one another. And when you have kind of slower cells, then you might not see those encounter rates being the same. And so the aggregation rates may not be the same. So it's a very complicated story, but it's really cool because we're kind of trying to understand what drives these unique sperm behaviors and um, and understand how, how they form and, and why they're forming. So what kind of head shape are you, uh, are you after if you're in a, uh, you want like a real aerodynamic, uh, head Mm. shape? What, what is it? Is it like a size thing? Is it like, what, what diversity is there in the shape of it? Well, so, so, um, I have this image of all six species that are kind of representative and to the naked eye, when you look at it, you don't notice you don't notice they're different at all, unless you're me and you've looked at thousands of these images and then you say, oh, some of these do look whiter. Um, so we're, we're really, there are very subtle, subtle differences between them um, in terms of their hook length, in terms of their width, in terms of what we're, um, what another trait we're looking at is the head aspect ratio. So the width to the length. Uh, there's more to a sperm cell than just the head and there's more to a sperm cell than just the length. There are all these dynamic properties that um, are really important to look at also. And we've been investigating those as well, including, you know, the, the mid piece region of the cell that is really where the mitochondria are present that drives the energy of the cell. Mitochondria. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what that's what it was early on, and oh. uh, that's what they they were able to take the mitochondria from two oh, different females and, cool. and combine it. All yeah. right, awesome. I, I I you should send me this paper because I've never seen this, yeah. but I'd be interested to learn more about it. Um, yeah. So so we are focusing on the head because we've hypothesized that it's really head shape. Other and other folks have hypothesized that it's head shape that's driving these unique behaviors. But again, you know, it can't just be that because there are other animal systems that don't have apical hooks on their head. Um, invertebrate species, for example, that form these aggregates too, that don't have these kinds of sperm shapes. So we're focusing on one species, but hoping that it can be generalizable to others as well. And that remains to be seen, but it's still, um, it's a really cool project and I've learned a lot. And uh, I'm hoping that we can kind of gain a better understanding of what these what these sperm behaviors unique sperm behaviors are doing so these aggregates these are just like sperm teaming up basically and and so at first in my mind when i was picturing it i pictured this being like this really helpful beneficial thing and and in some way like helping it move faster or something like that but now when you mentioned that they just kind of have this sticky velcro like edges is this just some sort of byproduct thing and they're just stuck to each other they'd rather not be but they're this is this is it could be i mean you can imagine this evolving as you know the their surface proteins on sperm heads are important and if there's a particularly sticky region that just happens to be around the width of it and when you get a cell that then starts to increase that width and then they start to group together in some species like the promiscuous species you might see that that then takes on a life of its own and then those aggregates are better able to kind of form a perfect aggregate swim much faster than single cells and then they benefit from having that behavior right it could have been a byproduct um we obviously don't know and that's something that would be interesting to test um but we yeah we have we have no idea we do know like it does seem like in the monogamous species though that these aggregates are just doing something a little different um so in the other species in which they do form a lot of sperm aggregates. Uh, they're actually slower than their single sperm. So indicating that there's 
relax there's likely some relaxed selection on those aggregates they they don't need to be fast because they're only a single male mating and therefore only their sperm are present within the female tract whereas in the promiscuous species they have multiple competitors and so there there would be selection favoring traits like that that might allow them to outcompete each other hmm. Yeah. How are these groups being formed? How are they? I, I mean, yeah, we don't know. I, it's, it's so strange. How do you? Which do do you know which which sperm you want to be? Is it is it the guy at the hmm. at the front of the team that's <laughs> that's getting through, or is it like, or is it like in NASCAR where you you, you go behind the person and, oh, and yeah, then like the, a peloton the draft? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So these so there are some like the wood mouse. Um, they do form sperm trains. But the species I work on, they're forming, think of it more as like a sperm jellyfish, right? All their heads are kind of orienting in a certain way, touching each other. All their flagella are behind them and they're moving forward like a little shuttle, um, jellyfish shuttle. So that, so they look a little different. And so there's no, it's hard to say like which one will end up, we don't know what's happening inside the female, right? And so we don't know how they end up breaking up or who ends up being the one to go further potentially, I mean, this is just conjecture and let's call this hand wavy science, but potentially what if like the central one can become kind of immodal in the aggregate while the others are shuttling it along to preserve its energy. And then once it gets to a certain point, then it shoots off into the center, right? Uh-huh. I mean, I, who knows? We we don't know. And it would be very cool to to figure this out. And we're on a mission to to try to do it. Um, or my lab is, uh, my lab is on a mission. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, still, it's still completely a mystery, which is the fun part of doing science, right? Is figuring out, um, answering these questions that, that are really interesting and, and your curiosity gets the best of you. And so you think I want to keep going and figure out what this means. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say that, Boy, I feel like any way that I'm going to say this, it's it's <laughs> going to be incorrect. Um, okay. Would you say that evolution works faster when when there is in these uh, promiscuous species the the uh, these? Oh, absolutely! The, yeah, it's, things are becoming a lot more complicated, a lot faster. There's there's more selection pressure, right? Absolutely, and that was a perfectly way to good way to say that. Okay. Um, yeah, so ra- so rapidly evolving traits are a thing, right? And this is one of the cool reasons. This is one of the reasons that it's super cool to study these things because, um, th- these processes really are driving biodiversity. They're one of the main drivers of biodiversity uh, because you can get suddenly the when you have rapid trait evolution, then you can start to see new species form, right? Speciation happens this way. So it's a really cool uh, process that can lead to pretty drastic uh, pretty drastic results in, in what we see in nature. So when people um, – People might think like, this is kind of a weird way to spend your day. Why would you spend your day researching sperm and what are we learning from it? But there's so much that this can be applied to. I mean, what I do is basic science. It's discovery science. I'm driven by my curiosity and I have no idea what I'm going to discover. And that's the beauty of this kind of science, right? And that's why it's very important to continue funding this kind of science. We have no idea how this information could be useful and could be applied down the line. But we do know that this is important. These kinds of studies are important for understanding biodiversity and how speciation happens. It's important for developing reproductive assisted technologies so that people can build families if they're maybe potentially not able to. And it can be useful for um, for conservation programs and for saving endangered species and understanding their, their um, 
their mating behaviors and their their traits that are important in fertility. So there's a number of reasons why this kind of research is important. And I just wanted to make a quick plug because um, you know, this this is a process the postcopulatory sexual selection is a driver of biodiversity. And as I mentioned earlier, it's thought to be responsible for all of the d- trait diversity that a lot of the trait diversity that we observe in terms of traits that are important in reproduction. Hmm. How many uh, how many sperm does uh, your are they deer mice? Deer mice. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how many sperm does a deer mice have in a ejaculate? A single ejaculate. Yeah. Um, I'm actually not sure. I can't really answer. Is it a that. lot? Uh, Yes, they, but not on the I'm, level of humans. I mean, these are smaller mice, right? And zero mice are one species. That's Permiscus maniculatus, and I work on six different species. There definitely is a difference in the sperm production between promiscuous species and monogamous species. And deer mice are promiscuous, so they produce a lot of sperm. Um, but more tickets in the lottery. Exactly. Yeah, sperm competition is often in a lot of animal systems. It's a numbers game. The more raffles you enter, the more likely you are to win. That can be thwarted when processes that happen in the female are going to bias sperm in favor of certain males. So maybe it's just the second male that will get to fertilize most of her eggs, so it doesn't really matter. And then you get cool things like males evolving the ability to detect if she's made it or not, and then whether or not they're going to invest a lot in giving her a lot of sperm. So it's a term called ejaculate economics, where some males will maybe withhold some of their ejaculate, especially if they're costly, and give it to another female who they're going to get more you know, they're going to win more lottery tickets. from. Mm. So there's a lot of fun things that are going on there. <laughs> there's some species that have like a sperm, right? Isn't there? Uh, are you thinking of, um, you're I thinking think of, so like some sort of insect or something like that, that just has like one big. <laughs> oh, sperm. you're talking. Oh, I thought you, you meant a single sperm cell. Yeah. Uh, not that I know of. I mean, insects transfer their sperm through what are called spermatophores. So they're mm. little packets of sperm cells. Um, Maybe I used, that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, yeah. It's got a lot of sperm in it, though. Um, I used to study arachnids, actually. And they um, a lot of insects transfer them. Basically, the idea is that when you tra- when organisms transitioned from having to mate underwater, where they just release sperm and eggs into the water, and they're already in a, a fluid media, once we evolved onto, or organisms started evolving onto land, they had to solve the problem of how do I fertilize uh, and and have this like fluid media. And so spermatophores are thought to be kind of this transition period where there are these little encased, you can think of like, um, it's just like a little ball full of fluid, but also has sperm in it. And males can transfer those indirectly, so not even inseminating the female with them. Just the species I used to study, this cute little arachnids called pseudoscorpions, they would just lay these packets all over the place on the ground, and females would just come and pick them up. So they they actually had the most boring sex you could imagine because they never met each other. Um, but then you have... The females just like, oh, I wonder what one of these puddles I'd like <laughs> to sit in. No, they'd have to know what they are. I bet there's like some kind of chemo... Uh, you know they're they're attracted to the smell or something from them because they they wander to them and then they they have to like s- like basically position their body and press onto them to pick them up so they know uh, they, the females know what to do with them um, but uh, but then you have things like um, crickets where they still transfer spermatophore and beetles do the same thing but they're transferring them inside the female uh, so I mean this is fascinating I don't know if you've ever thought of this but the whole purpose of a penis is just to increase the likelihood of inserting your sperm yeah. closer to the site of fertilization, right. which is likely driven by sperm competition. Right. Um, so kind of fun to think about. Right. I mean, this is all, I mean, it, it, uh, sexual selection started with 
sperm competition in the in the first place, right? And then it just kind of got more and more uh, a billion years ago, and it just kind of got more and more complicated, and and right. led to these more external processes of having these complicated bodies and everything that now now right. we can like fight physically <laughs> before our sperm fights. Right. Um, so you're so, talking, I mean, you're specifically talking about anisogamy, right? Like the, the, the fact that we have like numerous sperm, there are two different gamete types and there's large eggs and then there, there's the other strategy that males have of producing a lot of tiny yeah. numerous sperm, right? That's fun to think about. This is the ultimate sexual conflict story too, because it's like females are investing so much more and males are investing less. Although, I mean, sperm are costly in some animal systems. Um, our understanding of sperm is that they're cheap, but there are actually, depending on the species, there are some costly sperm out there. And um, Definitely and- need a nap afterwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> huh. Um, I, I mean, it is life is just so silly to me that all of this... <laughs> This is just uh, like, but one of my favorite quotes is that the uh, chicken is just the egg's way of making another egg. Uh, oh, that's that, a, that's brilliant! <laughs> that all of this is just this very complicated way of doing this very basic thing. True. I mean, something I like to point out is like, you know, the the function of sperm is super simple. It's just to fertilize an egg, and yet it is one of the most diverse cell types out there. So. You know, when we think of form and function, you often if you see something that's similarly shaped, you think, oh, well, it all shares the same function. That's driven by its function. And yet we have something that shares a function, yet they just look so different across species. So um, I think that's I think it's an incredibly fascinating world to to be in. I feel very privileged and lucky that I get to spend my days thinking about these kinds of things. And um, yeah, it's a uh, we're learning a lot. And I'm thankful for all the other researchers who are kind of working on other systems so that we can increase our knowledge of this these areas and understanding what traits are important in fertility too I should mention obviously sperm traits so what are what are some of the questions that um, that you didn't have early on you started investigating some of these uh, some of these differences between promiscuous and monogamous species and you went in there with some of the questions and then you said that you figured out a few th- things, and then, as science tends to do, that opened up. You know, came along with ten more questions once you solved that. Did you have any uh, anything just in in the amount of time that you've been doing this, where mm-hmm. questions that have been raised since you started? Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the biggest questions personally that I'm driven by is understanding what's happening in the female. Often, we tend to kind of neglect what's happening in the female, even though that is also something that's evolving as well and something that's driving the evolution of sperm traits. And so um, I'm currently working on a project with one of my undergrads where we're trying to look at the female, uh, the properties of the inside of the female, of their, their fluids to understand what the natural environment of sperm actually are and to see if there's kind of an interplay and to look across uh, different female species to see if we notice any correlations with their mating system. Do we find that there are more simple fluids in monogamous species, but more complex ones in promiscuous species? So that's something that we're we're kind of looking at that I'm really curious because if we can, if I mean, as I mentioned earlier, this is not just, these traits aren't evolving on their own in a vacuum. They're evolving as a, a complicated interplay between what's happening in males and what's happening in females. And we have one, you know, we're trying to figure out one side of that story, but the other side of it still needs to be investigated too. And so that's something that we're we're working on as well. We also um, have found these 
mice in our population that don't actually produce sperm hooks. And so we've been also investigating what that purpose of that hook is to, if we can compare males that produce sperm with them and males that produce sperm without them, we can maybe get a sense of what it is that those hooks are doing. So that's another fun project I'm working on with another undergrad as well. And um, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's probably not just that they're looking cooler. It's Definitely not. Uh, <laughs> oh, that brings up a yeah. great point, actually. Like sperm are so refined. Like when sperm cells are formed, they shed everything they don't need. So every feature that's present on a sperm cell undoubtedly has to have a function. And so the question is just what? Who's going to get to that answer that question first? There are a lot of researchers looking at these apical hooks. And um, we have learned a lot about them. We do know that they're, the length and curvature of these hooks is associated with levels of sperm competition. But it's still, I mean, the ideal thing to do would be able to to somehow transgenically produce mice that don't produce those hooks. And the only thing that's different is just the production of those hooks and then see how they swim or see if they're able to fertilize. I mean, that's the ultimate way to test what the function is. And we're, we're getting at it through this accidental you know, developmental issue in our lab, but, um, but there, there certainly are other ways to go about it and hopefully we'll, we'll know soon. Yeah. It, so many of these things must have a, such a high cost. It must, it must be somewhat detrimental. You build an obstacle course in there to, to uh, increase selection pressure and sure, sure, that's great and everything. Now you're getting the the best sperm, the best genes, whatever. But but along the way, isn't there damage being done to say the sperm along the way, or or isn't the sperm itself mm -hmm. damaging, uh, adapting things that are damaging, uh, potentially damaging the female uh, along the way? Well, in terms of sperm, so. Obviously, there are trade-offs, right? Like sperm can potentially get bigger or, um, well, you can think of it as if there are going to be so many sperm and that's the way to win the, the fertilization game, that might trade off with how what size of sperm you can produce, right? And if there's a selection... If there's a selection pressure on sperm to say a certain size, then that might limit how many they can produce. Um, similar with sperm energetics, right? If you if you need to elongate your cell to be faster, that could also potentially produce drag on the cell and weight um, added weight. And so there there are just a number of things that that a sperm cell different forces acting on a sperm cell to be shaped the way it is. So in terms of cost, that's what I think of is that there. The, the benefit needs to outweigh the cost for the trait. Um, in terms of whether or not it would be costly to females, um, what were you thinking in terms of like? Well, just there, there's things out there like um, uh, there's certain, isn't there like a certain chemical messenger that makes females uh, less receptive to sex in certain species, oh. and and then oh, there's right. okay. there's and then there's other species that have their like puncturing. The oh, abdomen yeah. of okay. females, and, and like it's. I see. I mean, so, it's like horrific. Some of this <laughs> stuff, so, like it's it, 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 it's, it, it's. I, I mean, there's there's males that die in the process. Mm -hmm. In some species, you're talking about sp spiders. I think it's uh, some 
Australian red. Oh, something. the red back spider. Red they do back the spider mm-hmm. that the, like the male basically feeds himself to the female. Mm-hmm. Right? They do they do somersaults into the female's mouth, and then they <laughs> that's called sexual cannibalism, and it's not just in spiders. Yeah, that's a real thing. Um, yeah. So what you're getting into is the realm of sexual conflict, which is super fascinating. That's yeah. the entire reason I went into animal behavior and the work that I'm doing now, because in undergrad I took a class just on sexual conflict that was super fascinating, and we read this book that had just come out at the time um, about sexual conflict going through all these cool examples so yeah male male traits like the ejaculate um as you mentioned earlier like they're select you know males are being selected to try to outcompete one another but that might not be in the best interest of females so in something like the fruit fly their ejaculate contain way more protein well first of all ejaculates are not just sperm right when we say sperm competition we really should be saying ejaculate competition because it's the ejaculate as a whole and sperm are just a part of that but ejaculates are full of fluids and they contain proteins and we know that there are a crap ton of proteins that are mm-hmm. present in a lot of ejaculates that have different functions and in fruit flies we know that a lot of these are very costly to females they make them less sexually receptive uh, which may not be in the best interest of females if they do want to mate with multiple males those uh, those proteins reduce their sexual receptivity which is not in their be- the female's best interest it's in the male's best interest but it's not in the female's best interest so it's a good example of com- of sexual conflict there's also proteins present in the ejaculate that Uh, promote egg laying in the female so that she, after mating with him, she's then going to start laying a bunch of eggs, therefore using his sperm to fertilize them. But she may not want to fertilize her eggs with just his sperm. She might want to remate and have another male fertilize half of her eggs, et cetera. So that's not in the best interest of the female. Um, And often there's kind of this correlation between the number of eggs that get laid and then the survival of the female. So when they lay a lot of eggs, they end up dying quicker. So there's a lot of costly male traits that are that are affecting uh, male traits that are helping the male out, but that are costing the female in terms of their survival or their reproductive success. Mm. So as you can imagine, the, anything that's incredibly harmful to the to the female is going to select for traits in the female to resist those traits. So she is going to evolve ways that allow her to reduce those costs that are present so that she she can lay as many eggs as she wants and fertilizes them by who she wants to. And that's not in the best interest of the male. And that's how you get this co-evolutionary arms race between the sexes that is um, basically what sexual conflict is all about. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating because you you certainly wouldn't engineer something in in this way that you you wouldn't you wouldn't make a car that has some like detriment to the the right uh, the tank and for some reason I don't know right. uh, that's not the best example but but you well, you wouldn't if you were like starting from scratch if you were engineering something that you wouldn't build a lot of these right. Uh, I mean, I guess this that's in that scenario, though, there's a single engineer. Right. And the the issue here is in order to have reproduction, at least for non bacteria or non asexual reproducers, you need two sexes to do it. And they're not genetically, you know, they don't have they don't share 100 percent of their genes. And so they need to. They're, they're each trying to do their own thing that's going to maximize their fitness. And sometimes that's not aligned in monogamous species. That is, they are more aligned, obviously. There's not as much room for conflict as in promiscuous species. In promiscuous species, you see the evolution of these drastic traits that then bring the other sex down, that mm. it's mu- much less cooperative. And therefore, that's when you start to see these really bizarre traits start to evolve that that lead to really significant impacts on on um, kind of how uh, 
Uh, I don't know where I was going. That. <laughs> That's okay. But I, I do have a cool example of sexual sure. conflict I wanted to share yeah. with you. Um, I didn't get a chance to talk about this at Stand Up Science, but it's something that's super cool. All and right. I just wanted to make... I like cool things. I wanted to make sure I get a plug in for this. That was a pun, but you don't know it yet. So just be, be on the lookout. Oh, look I love plugs. <laughs> so, um, you know, kind of going back to this question of like, why should we study this? Well, there was this really cool paper that came out a few years ago in mosquitoes. And mosquitoes have sexual conflict where males produce mating plugs that uh, some species, they produce these mating plugs that plug females up. And those exist across a number of different animal systems. Chastity belts. Exactly. Though they can be chemical or physical. I would think of more of a a chastity belt as like a chemical or sorry, a physical guard, right? Mm -hmm. But there are chemical um, things like that ejaculate I just mentioned and fruit flies where they reduce female sexual receptivity. They don't have to physically do it. Uh, Afterwards, sorry, the lady's a- like, well, I just didn't care for that very much. Right. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to retract what I just said because that's not really a mating plug. That's more like changing female mating behavior. Yeah. Um, but where I was going with that is sometimes ejaculate fluids can actually harden within the female tract and that can create a physical blockage of the female. So I guess that would be kind of a a chastity belt as well. Or um, as you know, the honeybee, you know, the penis comes off inside the female and spiders, they're where the, the, they transfer sperm through their palps, their hands, and they can leave behind the, the end of the transferring sperm transferring, um, uh, appendage that blocks the female tract. So there's a number of ways males can mate, can produce a mating plug and plug up females. And obviously there are ways for females to get around that too. Um, but I'm so happy sperm doesn't come out of my hands. <laughs> <laughs> Guys are already gross enough. <laughs> we would be, we would, the, the whole world would just be covered in sperm if, oh, if yeah. we had it coming out of our fingers. Oh yeah. Well, so I mean, sidebar sperm, our spider reproduction is pretty cool. Because sperm spider male spiders produce sperm webs that they then put their sperm wow. onto, and then they charge their palps with they like suck up their palps with their sperm on the little web. Um, I've never seen a spider do that, and I would love to meet somebody who has. But it's pretty cool. It's like a very involved process for a spider to be able to recharge their palps and then carry them around like a superhero, waiting to to mate with females. And they do both. They have they charge up both pal- um, petty palps because. They, uh, the females have two different, the females have two different, uh, areas to, to, um, to be inseminated. So anyways, just total sidebar there. But my whole point is in mosquitoes, <laughs> males can produce, uh, and some species produce these mating plugs. And when they do that, they inject steroids into the female body that lowers her immune response. It makes her immune system weaker. And by doing that, they have, that allows pathogens like malaria to enter her body. Mm-hmm. And so this study that came out looked across this different these different species and groups of mosquitoes and looked at the incidence of mating plugs compared to the incidence of high risk of malaria infection in humans. And what do you know? There is a huge correlation between those species that have high sexual conflict and those mating plugs and incidence, high risk of incidence of malaria in the human populations around hmm. them. So sexual conflict is potentially driving malaria. And uh, and the issue, the, this public health problem, and understanding how that system works is potentially a way for us to be able to resolve it. It's very cool. Yeah, no one no one saw that coming in the, in the <laughs> no. malaria. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's no. actually about sperm plugs. It's vindication for whoever that person was that decided to start looking into some mating plugs, and and we're like, huh. 
you know, people were probably making fun of them at parties. Like you do what with your free time yeah. uh, or your, your career. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. So, so it, it is a detriment to the females, uh, Absolutely. immune system. Huh? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a whole lot of costly. It's a, it's a real pain. All, mm-hmm. all this sexual reproduction. So it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a whole <laughs> lot of busy work, a whole lot of trouble. Um, it, it is, a, I'm, I am worried that well, I, maybe I'm not that worried, but, uh, I, I think once we can just start turning skin cells into sperm i think i think <laughs> I, I i think there's going to be not as much use for guys <laughs> around anymore. oh we'll i wouldn't say that <laughs> i wouldn't say that i mean obviously there are some you know fertility clinics and such for uh for sperm donors to sure. to drop their sperm off but um I don't think the old-fashioned, the old-fashioned mating game is going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. So I have my guests each week plug a nonprofit of their choice. Did you have one in mind? I sure do. Uh, I wanted to plug 500 Women Scientists, right. which that's how I found you. It is. That is um, especially cool that you were able to find me through through that. I'm one of the DC Pod coordinators, and um, 500 Women Scientists is a nonprofit group that's dedicated to making science more open and inclusive and accessible. And we're pretty active. I mean, there are pods all over the all over the world, and um, we're pretty active here in the DC Pod. And there are some really lovely women who do it and who are involved in it, and who kind of make science a better place to be for women. So I just wanted to plug them and and thank you for making it a point to hear from more female yeah, scientists as well. I, That's also I very important. Try to have a solid mix of females on the podcast. Yes. As often as possible. I'd be a female half the time if I could. And then, then, it, <laughs> 25% then it would be an equal. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, all right. So what is what is the um, what's the future of of this uh, of studying this cryptic female choice and sperm competition stuff? You're talking about electron microscopes uh, mm. and and uh, the new technologies. Is there anything like the cutting edge technology or, or that that you can't wait to get your hands on or, or something that is like right around the corner that once you have more access to it or in a, in a dream world, what would make your uh, th- this these studies easier? I think that's such an important question to ask um, because obviously we wouldn't know half of what we know without improving technology. And so we're really dependent as scientists on technology. The further technology advances, the further we can further, the the more we can advance our science and scientific understanding. Um, going back to the electron microscopy though, that's actually a very old tool to use, but it's a very underused tool. I think it's kind of making a revival now um, because it allows us to have very high resolution images of sperm cells and other kinds of cells. I know that now we can do things like use cryo-EM instead of just regular um, scanning electron microscopy or SEM. Uh, so there are definitely pushes in other directions. But I'm using kind of an old school tool to, in a new way to, to answer an, uh, a question, a new question. Um, but in terms of other technologies that I look forward to, I think it would be really cool to be able to genotype a single sperm cell. That's mm. kind of my ideal uh, uh, technology that would evolve. And I think there are potentially some ways to do it now that I'm not versed in, but that 
um, it would be fascinating to learn because the idea behind that kind of circling back to what we were talking about earlier with kin selection you can is see if which one got picked, you can see who's grouping if they're re- more related than others, right? Coming back to that idea that you oh, might benefit more your relatives more. So sperm or oh, haploids, some sperm are more related than others. And we don't know if they're grouping selectively. And so that would be a really cool thing to test, um, that in this system that I'm working on. And, um, hopefully one day, um, Heidi Fisher, my, my mentor and the PI of the lab I work in will be able to discover that. Very cool. Well, exciting stuff. Thank you very much, Kristen Hook, for studying sperm hooks and talking <laughs> about them. You're uh, very welcome. To me on the, on the podcast. Very fascinating, interesting stuff. It was lovely to meet you. And uh, thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Thank you for having me. Next week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about memory and neuroscience and memory, how memories are formed, just all sorts of memory-related stuff. Such a great conversation. It's going to be a two-parter. Had such a great talk, uh, just talking generally about memory that we didn't even get specifically into his super interesting work. So I asked him if he's available, came back the next day, recorded a part two. So it's going to be the next two weeks, actually, we're going to be hearing all about memory uh i know it's something you guys are interested in uh we we just had the gabby principe episode talking about false childhood memories um just such an interesting topic how all this memory stuff works and uh and it really we really get into a pretty big heavy in my opinion anyway uh conversation about consciousness itself and man really terrific i I think you guys are really gonna dig the next two weeks so check that out don't forget libro.fm offer code here we are to get three months for the price one while supporting your local indie bookstore and educating yourself or or maybe you're just reading some books for fun I only read science books, and I forget that other people uh, do things differently than I do. Other people read other things besides science books. I, I, boy, I really am in my own little world. Um, so yeah, you can do that too. Read whatever you want. Um, uh, and uh, Michael Meditations coming up next January 18th through 25 we're still sorting out the details they are it isn't for sale yet in fact we're determining whether we're going to do the the high-end route with better accommodations and better food or do the cheaper one make things a little more affordable for you guys waiting for more feedback from you guys are you interested january 18th through 25th great way to get away for the winter and um and, and michael meditation psilocybin retreat is uh is incredible it's for for the price of what a a trip to jamaica would cost you anyway you're getting these incredible experiences um with these group retreats doing psilocybin working on yourself um, most 11 out of 11 people in the last uh retreat had like absolute life-changing experiences i think there was one person that wasn't like totally like mind-blowingly life-changing and he's like the one person who is already signed up to come back 
just to give you an idea of how incredible um, these these retreats have been for so many people every single time that I've been there and and you're getting like all that basically just for free for all, all the mushroom stuff all the all the facilitators all the people there um, making sure that you're safe and and helping guide you through these experiences um, basically that's you know that's all just uh, bonus so it's uh, it's a really good deal if you ask me and it's quite the experience I brought my my assistant and her boyfriend down there on the last one um, as as a kind of Christmas bonus but mostly just to see just to make have another set of eyes on it make sure that I'm not crazy for thinking this is just an incredible opportunity for people and they were blown away by it they want to come back and be more involved as well um, I think it's uh, there's nothing else like it um, so go go to Michael Meditations, watch some of the testimonials. If you haven't checked out Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics yet, you can see my journey and why I care about these things. And yeah, I I'm just super excited. I, I released a new episode on Patreon. Um, finally, uh, it's been like a year, um, and I finally released one, and I, I have some more on the way um i don't know what all i'm going to talk about i've been talking about how how to get motivated and productive lately as i've been feeling that way with summer so you can check that out if you want as well and um yeah that's that's about it got oh cincinnati my goodness guys cincinnati i have a stand-up science coming on june 1st in Cincinnati, so make sure and check that out. Go to shanemoss.com and find out about more stand-up science dates. I'll have more Midwest stuff coming up in July as well. We've been adding dates to the calendar already, so have a peek at that. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite.